Mark chapter 14, starting reading at verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. 
And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands now as peter was below in the courtyard one of the servant girls of the high priest came and when she saw peter warming himself she looked at him and said you also were with jesus of nazareth but he denied it saying i neither know nor understand what you're saying and he went out on the porch And a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them. For you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. The second time the rooster crowed. And then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Amen. Thank God that he teaches us through his truth. Well, before we come to think about these words together, let's just... Pray to God and ask for his help. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us and instructs us, it rebukes us and corrects us. But sometimes we don't always understand what it's teaching. Our human minds cannot comprehend it. And so we pray today for the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds so that we might understand and believe what you're teaching. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was just before Easter, 
I got a handwritten letter in the post. Uh, it was addressed to me personally. And it isn't often that that happens anymore. So I was quite excited to open it and see what it was. It was a personal invitation to a commemoration of the death of Jesus from the local Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm sorry that I wasn't there to meet them in person on the doorstep and be able to have a conversation with them. I don't know if anybody else received one of those a number of weeks ago. From a first glance, you might have thought that it was from a Christian church. The Jehovah's Witness stamp on the back was very small. And can I say, folks, we need to be careful about this sort of thing. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians, but they will cloak themselves and and mask themselves under the guise of Christianity. They will say that there's very little difference between them and biblical Christianity. But when we dig down, there are huge differences. If I was there at the door that day, there are some questions, three questions, that I would have wanted to ask them. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is truth? And what should we do about that? What shall we do about it? Those are the three questions I would like to ask Jehovah's Witnesses. They would have very different answers from me. And in fact, they would have very different answers, more importantly, from what the Bible says. I wonder if you would know how to answer these questions. Who is Jesus? What is truth? And what shall we do about it? We have a large passage today. But this passage gives us answers to all three questions. Hopefully in the will of God and by the power of his spirit. In about 20 minutes, we'll all be a little more capable of answering these questions. Let's begin with the first one. Who is Jesus? This question arises from a couple of confusing things in our passage. I want to point them out to you because you might not have picked up on them. It would be helpful to have your Bibles open, but we're going to be flitting back and forward in this long passage. The first point of confusion for me as we read through this was in verse 28. Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to go on ahead of them into Galilee after his resurrection. A specific detail. And Jesus seems to be certain of this. He's certain of what will happen in the future. But wasn't it only a couple of passages ago that he's been very clear that there are some things he doesn't know. He doesn't know the day or hour of the coming of the Son of Man. So how is it that there are some things Jesus knows about the future with absolute certainty, but also some things he does not. If he is God, which we are clear that he is, how is it that he does not know all things? Or if his knowledge is limited because he's a man, how is it he knows any of the things that he does know? The second confusing thing, I think, in this passage 
is around what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. In a scene which would be worthy of a Hollywood blockbuster, Jesus goes to the garden to pray. Most of us are probably familiar with the words he prays. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus says to the Father, not what I will, but what you will. Isn't this significant? If Jesus is God, and as we believe, he and the Father have made an eternal covenant from before the foundations of the world. They've made this covenant that the Son should take on flesh and die for the sins of his people. So that his people would be for him an everlasting and treasured possession. If Jesus was in on this whole deal, how is it that he now prays that he has a different will from the Father? If we took this prayer of Jesus in the garden out of context, couldn't we point towards what some have described as cosmic child abuse? That the Father sent the Son unwillingly to the cross? How is it that Jesus is God? and yet has a different will from the Father. Those are the challenges. Those are the confusing things. Two questions uh, that, that give us a potential problem. Who is Jesus? Who is he? How is it that he knew what was going to happen, but at the same time didn't know? How is it that he claimed to be God, and yet prays that his will is different from the Father? Unless we go down the path of, Jesus and the Father being two different gods, well, then we've got a problem, don't we? The high priest recognises this problem. You can see his question in verse 62. The high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Hopefully you can see the issue. And this is an important issue. This is an issue where we part ways with the Jehovah's Witnesses. You see, they do not believe that Jesus and the Father are one. People have spilled lots of blood over this sort of question throughout the history and centuries of the church. If we are Christian, we need to know who Christ is. That's important. Knowing Jesus is the most important part of our faith, isn't it? I don't want you thinking, look, this sounds a bit like theology. I'm going to switch off now. Please know how important this stuff is. Unless we know Christ, as he is revealed to us in the scriptures, then we shouldn't call ourselves Christian. This is not a new question. The question of who is Jesus, as I've said, has been discussed and debated throughout the centuries of the church. Let me take you a way back, a way, way back, the year 451, 451 AD. The Council of Chalcedon was called and the church, uh, the church came together to decide on some important matters of Christian faith. This is like a very, very, very early version of our General Assembly. 
One of the matters that they debated was to do with this question. Who is Jesus? 450 years after Jesus' life, they were still wrestling with what the scriptures taught. And most specifically, they were interested in, are there two natures in Jesus? A human nature and a divine nature, or just one nature? Some people had begun to teach that Jesus only had one nature, which was neither completely God nor completely man, but it really depended on how you look at things, what aspect of Jesus you're thinking about. But contrary to that opinion, the Council of Chalcedon declared very clearly that the Bible teaches Jesus is truly man and truly God. Truly man and truly God. And we we still use that kind of language today, 1,500 years later. They went further, describing the, the incarnation, that in the incarnation, the divine second person of the Trinity took to himself a human nature. And so his divine nature and human nature became united. But they are not confused, mixed, divided, or separated. They're not melded into one nature, nor are they able to be separated from one another. The human and divine natures of Christ are always and forever united, yet each nature retains its own attributes. This is theology. But it's important for us to know who it is we worship when we gather. It's important to know who, who we're talking about when we talk about Christ. It helps with our problems in our passage today. It's entirely possible that in his human nature, Jesus did not know the day or hour. Yet in his divine nature, he knew that he would rise from the grave and go ahead to meet the disciples in Galilee. It's entirely possible that in his human nature, Jesus did not want to go to the cross. He didn't want the pain. He didn't want to die. What he said to his disciples, he felt himself in his human nature. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Friends, this is good news for us. This is good news because it means that through his human nature, Christ actually died on the cross. A human being went to the cross and died. Your sins have been dealt with through the death of Jesus. It wasn't trickery. It wasn't smoke and mirrors. Jesus actually died. And he has taken the weight of God's wrath against your sin. But in his divine nature, Jesus could not remain in the grave. Jesus has risen up to new life. And he lives forevermore, interceding for us. He knows the pains. He knows the trials. He knows the difficulties of this life. He knows what it is to be human. Jesus understands what it is that you're going through today. I don't know. 
I don't know all your pains and worries and concerns. You can take them to Jesus. He understands because he's been through it. He is a human. And yet he has the power of God to send his Holy Spirit into our hearts that we might believe and we might persevere through this life and enter into the eternal glories that await us. Jesus didn't mince his words whenever he did speak eventually to the high priest. The high priest asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus responded, I am. I am. Those two little words are so significant. I am is the covenant name of God. It's the covenant name that God used to to describe himself when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am, Yahweh. And so the high priest was under no illusion. He asked Jesus, who are you? Jesus said, I am. The man standing before him, well, he was a man for sure. He was a man who could be sent to a cross to die. And yet that man was claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know what happens next. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. He said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Friends, Jesus Christ was put to death for the very thing that we gather to celebrate today. That in one person, and one person, only one person ever, Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. That is something that the Jehovah's Witnesses would not be clear on. But there are other questions in our passage we need to think about. Our second question is, what is truth? What is truth? Our first question is about the person, the person of Jesus. The second question is about the book. What is truth? It's about the Bible itself. How can we trust this book? Our passage has this question at its centre, the, the question of truth. It appears that Jesus is being put on trial over the, the issue of truth. But it's actually the Jewish religious leaders who are on trial, isn't it? What do they believe? It's actually Peter and the other disciples. What is truth to them? Do they believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Will Peter tell the truth whenever he's confronted around that fireplace? In our final point, we will think briefly about what Peter did and how we might hope to react differently. But for a few moments, let's consider the Bible itself. How can we trust this book as true? I think there are two elements in our passage which are helpful. The first element is the quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. And the second thing is just the weirdness about some of the things we read about in this passage. There are many reasons, many reasons that we know the Old Testament to be the infallible word of God. But one of those reasons has to be how often Jesus quotes it. 
How often Jesus alludes to the Old Testament. How much Jesus clearly fulfills the Old Testament. This is throughout our passage. Jesus speaks on more than one occasion about the need for scripture to be fulfilled. He quotes from Zechariah 13 about the scattering of the sheep. As we've mentioned, he refers to himself as the I am, the Old Testament's covenant name for God. So we can hold firm to the whole Bible, to the Old and New Testaments, because it is God's word. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus used the Old Testament as the word of God. He is the one who confirms the scriptures to us. And as we've seen, Jesus is to be trusted because he is fully God and fully man. This shouldn't be taken for granted. I hope you know there are people who claim to be Christians, but will totally discount the Old Testament as the word of God. That's a cruel and oppressive God. We want nothing to do with that. There are even some people who would remove large sections of the New Testament as well and still claim the name of Christ. There are people who make arguments based on a small fraction of the words of Jesus in the flesh. They ignore other things that Jesus said and they write off the rest of the Bible. They deny it. And there are others still who claim that the Bible is not our only source of ultimate truth. They claim that there are other places where we get truth with a capital T. Some people claim to have private revelations. Things told to them by God in their own head. And what they hear in their own head, well that becomes the truth. And we can ignore the scriptures. I read a quote from the Puritan John Owen this week. I thought this was really helpful. He said, if private revelations agree with scripture... Well, then they're needless. Why would we need them if they agree with Scripture? If they disagree, then they're false. The Bible is truth. The truth of Scripture is an area to tackle the Jehovah's Witnesses on. Their religion is based upon an erroneous translation of the Bible. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness to see John chapter 1, you And I know what John 1 says. It says, the word was God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1 in a Jehovah's Witness Bible says the word was a God. We need to be careful on this question. What is truth? I want to give you another reason we believe scripture to be true before we move to our final point. I was chatting with a man recently and he was questioning me about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And naturally, I pointed to the New Testament. I said, the the evidence is there in the New Testament. And he replied to me, sure, that's all made up. It's all made up. I wouldn't even read it. It just shows you that people don't really look for the evidence that they claim to be after. Friends, I want to ask you today, we just read most of this chapter. You couldn't make this stuff up. Look at the account we've just read. Remember that at the time that this was written, and people are reading it in Rome, Peter is still alive. Peter is a very influential figure in the church at this time. 
And we've said before that Mark's gospel is likely an account given by Peter. Would Peter really include in this book his predicted denial and then the fact that he went through and did it, that he denied Jesus? Surely he would just gloss over that bit. He would leave it out. Wouldn't people view Peter differently after reading this? But the word of God is truth. It doesn't leave out the difficult or the hard bits. And we can see from verses 51 and 52, it doesn't leave out the weird bits either. I'm not really sure. I've thought about this. I've read the commentaries. I'm not really sure why we need to know that there was a young man who ran away naked. I'm not really sure why we need to know that. But the fact that it's there lends credibility, does it not, to the fact that the Bible is true? I haven't quoted C.S. Lewis for quite a while, so let me talk about C.S. Lewis. He was a scholar in myths and legends, especially Norse mythology. And what Lewis said is that as he read the New Testament, it doesn't read like a myth or a legend. It reads like historical reporting. It reads like narrative. It's more like a journalistic account than a myth. Details like numbers and dates and a young man running away naked. Those things aren't included in the great myths and legends. But they're here in the Bible because this is a historical account of what actually happened in the history of our world. These are reliable historical sources. The Bible is our truth. We've seen that we should look at the person and ask who is Jesus. We should look at the book and ask what is truth. We have to finish with that final question. What shall we do about it? If Jesus is truly God and truly man who died on the cross, and if this book tells us that it's true, what shall we do about it? What shall you do about it? What are you going to do about the fact that Jesus died for your sins? Are you going to trust in him? We end our passage today. and The religious establishment condemns the God-man. They send him to the cross. The authorities grab him. They blindfold him. Some of them beat him and spit on him and mock him. This is the God of the universe, the one who flung the stars into space, being treated like scum. Even his loyal followers have abandoned him. Judas betrayed him. The rest have been scattered. And his most loyal, the one who said, I will never. Peter denied him three times. He was given the opportunity to retract it three times. He denied Jesus. Jesus is God. His word is truth. And yet we finish our passage today with him abandoned, betrayed, and denied. Peter is left weeping over what has happened. What shall we do about it? Characters in our story seem not to trust in Jesus. And that's what most people in this world do. Most people don't trust in Jesus. 
Will you be one of those who don't trust? There are those of us here today who have already trusted in Jesus. Thankfully, we've placed our hope and our trust in him. Well, there's both challenge and comfort for us in this passage today. The challenge is to keep looking to Jesus as the God-man, to keep studying his word as truth, to keep equipping ourselves. Don't despise theology. Don't think it's too difficult. Keep going, slowly, patiently, consistently learning who Jesus is, what is truth. And the comfort is to take note that the story doesn't finish at the end of our passage today. We know that Peter was restored. Isn't it a comfort? I don't know, I I find it such a comfort to read about Peter in the New Testament. Peter is such a strong-headed character and he messes up all the time. Yet he is restored as an apostle, a leader in the early church. If even Peter can stumble... then it's okay for you when you stumble. Jesus can restore you. If you're anything like me, you stumble all the time. You see, our salvation, Peter's salvation and our salvation doesn't depend on our ability to hold on to it. It doesn't depend on our strength. It depends on Christ's faithfulness to hold on to us. Christ will not let us go. I think in a way, Peter's tears show that he was made stronger through this denial. God used even Peter's sinfulness to refine and to strengthen his faith. It's my prayer that God would do that work for us today, that we would look to Jesus and ask ourselves, who is this man? That we would look to the Bible and ask, what is truth? And then we would look at our own lives, our own hearts, and ask, what shall we do about it? Let me pray for us.